Hello and welcome to Nimsy Live, the live cast, live stream where we have guests from all around the world and we talk about things related to language, culture, localization, globalization, internationalization, interpreting, and all of the other SEO keywords that I'm sure I will put down in the description after this. Today, my guest is Lawson Stapleton, who comes to us from ABC Multilingual all the way down under in Australia, down in South Australia. Welcome. Lawson, how are thank you? Thank you very much. I'm great, thank you. How are you? Very good. Very good. Thank you. And um, before we get started here, just a quick note from Nimsy. Nimsy Insights is a market research and um, consulting company. Excuse me. We specialize in language, culture, international business, globalization, internationalization, all of the things that go on behind the scenes in the shadow, shadow industry we call localization that helps enable global brands to be global. Today, though, we're scaling it back just a little bit, and we're talking about more of a local level. We're talking about interpretation specifically to Australia. And Lawson, you joined in kind of last time we talked about this. You were joining in in the chat when I had Hannah, my colleague Hannah, who's doing research on the Australian language market right now, and you had some very insightful things, and I said, well, why don't you come on and talk about this? Because um, I am no expert when it comes to talking about Australia, especially if we're talking about something as nuanced as the indigenous language scene, like what's going on down there. And having been in this industry for a while, if I am ignorant to this, I guarantee there are other people that are ignorant to this fascinating market. And so thank you for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. Thank you for having me. It's exciting to be here. Well, let's get right into it. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What, um, and we were talking a little bit before this about your company and your role in it and the role of indigenous languages in your company and how that kind of evolved. Give us, give us the story here a little bit. Sure. Uh, so the agency that I work for, ABC Multilingua, uh, located in Adelaide, South Australia, uh, historically focused on international languages, uh, being really languages anywhere from other than Australia. Uh, about five and a half years ago, there were a couple of inquiries into the business as to do you do any Indigenous languages? And at that time, we didn't. Uh, we had a bit of an event, and so we thought we should do something about this. And basically start off with one particular language called uh, Bidinjar, which comes from the far northwest of South Australia, uh, from a place called the Ananul Bidinjar Yungunjara lands, or APY. Oh, I'm so glad you could pronounce these, <laughs> because we were struggling last time. It's very hard just looking at the written um, Latin script to be able to pronounce these languages. And I'm very conscious of that, because I, me not being able to pronounce something, I don't want that to be construed as disrespect to the language. Oh, I, it's encouraged to give it a go. Okay. Um, okay. Our, our indigenous friends really appreciate and love it when we, when we give it a go. Good. Good. Oh, that makes me feel so much better. Thank you. Thank you. So, oh, sorry to interrupt. You were, you were saying um, you started off with this language from the north. Yes. And uh, basically, um, it, it sort of was one of those dawning moments of why, why don't we do indigenous languages? Um, why isn't anyone or is anyone doing indigenous languages? And at that time, there were only uh, really two agencies focusing on Indigenous languages, which was the Aboriginal Interpreting Service, or AIS, in the Northern Territory, uh, based in both Alice Springs and Darwin. They've been around for about 25 years. 
uh, and they work with many, many communities, uh, but list uh, about nine languages. Okay. Uh, belonging to what we would sort of dissect into the central desert languages, uh, which is really the centre of Australia, desert. It, it is what it is. It's remote. Yeah. Yeah. And then in uh, the other region that they primarily deal with is the what we would call the top end, which is basically Darwin along sort of the coast of the Northern Territory and the surrounding islands. So we have uh, Tiwi Islands, uh, Galwaniku or the Crocodile Islands and Groot. Uh, island and those languages uh, if we're looking at that way we've, we've got sort of languages like Yonumara uh, but Yonumara is kind of like saying Farsi but we know it could be Persian or Dari or like or maybe even Aziri. Um, the, it's often pretty common with um, indigenous and um, I'll just say indigenous languages that these different dialects, the, the line between what constitutes a language and what constitute a dialect is not always so clear. Right. I, I totally agree. And uh, with Yonumara, um, it's, it is a bit misleading in that Yonumara is recognized as a language, but we're actually dealing with 32 different dialects. Um, so as a service provider, if we get a request for Yonumara, our responsibility is to navigate, okay, is this, for example, Jamapanyu or Kapapanyu, um, to determine wow. which wow. one we're working with. And also, I guess, what we would know is localization, making sure that the local language and dialect is appropriate to that target audience. Wow. So that really complicates things. Why, and are you able to fulfill those requests? Um, Most of the time, yes. Because that's, that sounds... There's a reason I don't do interpreting, and I've said this before, and I've said this before publicly, because interpreting is hard. Um, localization, localization, translation is a complex thing. I'm a, I'm a translation guy, right? It's my background, and sure. it's a complex thing, but you take all of that, and then you add the complexity of, like, time, date, and, you know, making sure people are in a specific location at a certain time. And it just, it becomes very difficult. So it's like my skin kind of crawls when you say there's 32 different dialects. <laughs> because it's like, okay, it's just one language that I need. To, oh, wait, it's that language. So but, but are they mutually intelligible, though? What happens if you can't find one of those specific dialects? Is it better to reschedule or is it better to send um, the not specific interpreter? Does that, am I making sense? Oh, to totally. It's nice to speak to someone who understands. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> I don't normally get that. I, I'm just thinking uh, like, all right, I'm already thinking if I got this project, how many different ways could I fail and what would I try uh, to do? What are my contingency plans? That's where my mind it, goes, like immediately is, to contingency plans. <laughs> that is exactly right. Um, in indigenous languages, it's really, it's, it's quite difficult. So to immediately answer your question, there are intermutual languages. Um, so for example, if I was in the central desert language and I had Pitanjara and I had Yankunjara, um, they are intermutual for the most part. Like you, you could get away with that. Um, so depending on what you're doing, uh, we, we could continue and providing that the individual uh, confirms, like as in we would throw the option out, we wouldn't oblige. Um, so if we right. had a... Uh, so you wouldn't force it. No, no. And if we did a project, um, if we, we would definitely work with the, the, the particular source language, but we would basically say what's achievable and what's not rather than setting up a client for failure. Makes perfect sense. And well, and of course it's, you know, at the end of the day, it's interpreting is it's about the clients, of course, right? You got it. You're, you're a business, you're making money, 
but it's interpreting is highly, highly, highly about the the people that you're serving, the limited lingu- limited English proficiency in this case um, communities. Talk a little bit about. Um, you said earlier you mentioned like what you're asking yourself why why are we not doing indigenous languages? Who is doing indigenous languages? Why aren't more people doing indigenous languages? As you were answering those questions, what answers did you find? Uh, well, where do I start? Um, so getting back to the other providers, so five and a half years ago, the only providers I could find were two, and they were solely doing indigenous. Uh, one, the Aboriginal Interpreting Service, located in the Northern Territory. Um, and then we had, which were formerly the Kimberley Interpreting Services, uh, which are now, I believe, the Western Australia Indigenous Interpreting Services. Um, I I found basically that the reason being is that those, those two geographics host the most Indigenous languages that are living, breathing, every day spoken. Uh, so it makes it makes sense that they're providing a service to an area that is actually active, whereas our say East Coast, New South Wales, Victoria, um, Tasmania, uh, going further south uh, and most of South Australia uh, unfortunately those languages have either come to the point of extinction um, or uh, they're being revived which means a, the spoken capacity is not there the individual is going to speak English yeah what, what does that mean what is to talk, walk us through that for, for people that are listening the extinct language endangered language being revived what, what, what do these things mean what does it mean when the language is being revived. And for those of you in the comments, hi, Oscar, who's always in our comments, is here again, and other people will get to you in a second. But yeah, um, talk to us a little bit about that. So a revival language, I can give you two examples. Um, so part of the reconciliation of Indigenous affairs, the federal and state governments made basically financial pools to rectify language as a part of culture for identification for Indigenous people. Um, so basically, uh, if we use, for example, I'm on Ghana land at the moment, mm-hmm. that's the indigenous people of, of the Adelaide Plains. Um, that language basically came to a point of things. Um, and what they're doing to bring the language back is that they are referring to old colonial texts and predominantly evangelical and Lutheran missionary texts where they translated the Bibles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they're taking the words from those sources to basically make a dictionary, if you will, or crafting sentences to try and understand the grammar, the syntax of how that language was constructed. Um, the only problem with those programs is that as well um, intended as they are, uh, people have this uh, this belief that, okay, we're going to rectify a language, therefore it's going to be a bit like perhaps Hebrew coming back to Israel. Um the problem is that we don't have enough resource for a language to be fully brought back. And also when it is uh, revived, so to speak, it's usually monopolized, um, meaning that if you um, do get a service that wants a rectified language, uh, you've got one source. And as we know in translating, uh, a lot of the time we need to double check or have it read over by a secondary source and we right. can't do that. Right. Yeah. So I... Makes it, makes it super tough to find proofre- proofreaders in translation. Like I said, I'm a translation guy, right? But it's like, yeah, yeah finding that first person is an uphill battle. Finding yeah. that second person, yeah, yeah. 
So, so you're not going to get a proofreader and then uh, then it, it is a question of legitimacy. Uh, how, how do I know uh, that this is um, the actual language rather than a bit of interpretive translating? Right. Um, so how genuine is it? I, I can't tell that. And so, for example, in Queensland, they offered $20,000 grants per language. And there's one agency that took 42 languages. Um, okay. Yeah. And I think that's an, an excellent idea of trying to get attention to those languages, looking into the history. But it's it's just it's money that could have been spent better and probably monitored, um, I think, is a fair criticism. Yeah, it's it's. It's especially it's, it's always challenging too when there's when there's money involved, right? When there's money yes. involved, when there's governments involved, because what we're talking about here is language, and we're talking about people's access, language access, nonetheless, right? People's yes. ability to hear and be heard and understand the environment that they're living in, but at the same time, there in order for that support service to exist, there needs to be government contracts, there needs to be regulations, there needs to be associations and companies like um, just to, to do this work. So it's like it's not – there's no easy answers, right? Um, no, there's not. And all we can do is just the all we can do, and make sure that the most people are getting ac getting access to the language that they need. And we we actually did quite a bit of work um, at NIMSI looking into language access for the medical medical interpretation for underserved communities in the state of California, here in the U.S. And it is just it's. Well, I don't want to comment on that. The, the publication of that report still still outstanding, of course, but um, so I don't want to comment on it. But it's just so complex. It's so yeah, complex. I, I right? And I think, you know, in, in the intro and in the description of, of this, we, we refer to this as the shadow industry, right? Localization, yeah. interpretation, all of this. Shit. Because if we're doing our jobs right, people shouldn't even know that we exist, right? We're here right. to serve. We're here to facilitate communication, not to be the communicators, right? Yes. And um, even more so when it's communication, access to that communication is um, tied to things like safety, tied to things like health, and tied to things like respect and um, what's the term I'm looking for? Just pride, I, w I would say. And um, so I guess the next thing I want to, to go into is what is what role does access to interpretation play for these different communities is it and this is an honest question is it like sure. a life and death like they don't speak a lick of english and they need access um, because they don't travel outside their communities so much or is it a nice to have to have an interpreter when you're going to a doctor's what's the severity here uh, it is case by case community but generally it's 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 uh, it's quite severe in in that we have communities that don't have infrastructure. Um, they rely on uh, being, like goods being brought in because they don't have local resource for water or food. Oh, this, uh, so these are like this. when you say remote communities, like literally remote. Like yeah, yeah, I'm, like I'm talking like 50, yeah, like fifteen hundred uh, or about one thousand five hundred kilometers from nowhere. Um, Wow. You don't have resources, so you're you're dependent on on trucking coming in. Um, that was really bad during COVID. 
Mm. Uh, as you can tell, because in rural remote communities, it, it's nearly impossible to get basic services in towns, uh, whether that's medical, policing, um, obviously you're not going to have industry, so unemployment is difficult. Um, you're not getting, there are attempts at education, but programs are difficult to be in, in bilingual mode. Um, so the delivery is not always effective. So yeah, how does that work? Are, are they teaching in these, in these communities? Are they teaching the, um, kids like are, are, are do most of the people is it like other countries where it's like yeah english proficiency isn't that high but um, amongst the younger generations all of the kids quote unquote speak english or speak the native language of the country is it like that type of situation or are they actually instructing the the next generation in the indigenous languages uh i think they're trying really hard it's just attendance is difficult uh -huh. um so they, try, they tried delivering, I know in, so I know this, uh, Queensland and South Australia had bilingual programs in native language and in English uh, to try and deliver it. Uh, but I know that there were complications in like finding people trying. who were, yeah, I, I, I actually don't know if they're still doing it, but I know attendance rates are awful. But one thing's for sure, uh, spoken, um, if there's going to be any uh, ability to communicate in English, it would be spoken and that's going to be very limited. Um, the literacy rates, reading and writing, uh, are really bad, really bad. And uh, sort of going back to what we're talking about with translating uh, as an agency, we learned that early on, and that was that was hard to digest for a lot of stakeholders. In that, um, they would come to us with a, a document that would be thirty pages, and go, "We want this translated into um, I don't know, Aranda um, or Walpuri or Yale." <laughs> Yeah, and we're going. Hey, this is this is a great idea. You know, very thoughtful. But you're going to lose thirty pages on anyone. Uh, but also, the literacy rates show right. us that. Yeah, uh, the literacy rates are not going to be effective for you to get this anyway. And that's where we started audio transcribing. Um, so we basically do a script. We'll turn it into a script. Do the voiceovers, and then we can put it on all the. The client can then put it on their website or put it on their phone or whatever go out to community and they can have the audio and they'll actually engage like because uh, they're listening and understanding as opposed to reading and or, or not being able to read wow that's that's fascinating i haven't, I yeah. haven't heard that before so sorry i'm getting a little feedback from i think uh, can you hear that it's okay if we it's alive. That's why we do this live. Lower expectations on audio quality. But um, no, I, I'm just I'm speechless because it's rare that I'm speechless because I just what do you think you've seen it all? I, I've never worked on a project where it's taking English written content and translating it into an audio delivery mechanism because I would still call that translation. I wouldn't call that interpreting because you're taking translate you're taking written text and translating it what you're doing is providing an additional layer of value on top of that by making the modality, the delivery mechanism more conducive to the localized audience, to the local audience, right. That you're trying to reach. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's proven to be very effective. So we've, we've done that for, we did it for COVID. Uh, we've done it for diabetes education. We've done it for, uh, drug and alcohol uh, we've done it for banking we've done it for um, social welfare services uh, and basically the all of a sudden the understanding the uh, attendance rate has dramatically gone up 
Wow. That's amazing. Great outside of the box thinking on that. Um, who are you doing these things for? So like when you're interpreting and we just discussed when you're doing it for the communities, right? But who pays the bills? Like who, who has the purse strings on this? And it, the reason I ask is because who has the purse strings has a lot of power in deciding what gets done. Right. And so it's interesting to me. Yeah. Well, uh, straight off the bat, uh, state, local and federal government. Um, and, and you'll be right. I mean, originally when we started, um, for, for example, with, with that sort of mode of communication of, of translating as an agency, it's sort of, it was a bit of a conundrum because if it was international languages, I wouldn't question it. We'd go, okay, that's achievable. We'll do that. Thank you very much for your business. But with indigenous, uh, what was happening is that, uh, again, an, a government agency would come along, say uh, water resource management would come along. And they would go, oh, we want this 30-page uh, uh, document done, and we want it in this language, and we want it by next week. We know it's like, we want it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's only going to cost 20 bucks, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. 20? Exactly. Um, and it'll be perfect. Yeah. Perfect quality <laughs> into a language that doesn't have a formalized alphabet, let alone. Yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. I've been there, done and that. so what we found was that uh, the community would, uh, our, trans, our translators would throw it back and go, okay, there's a couple of things here. One, 30 pages is going to be lost. Uh, two, there are cultural components to this that are just not, that we're not going to understand them. So we're going to have to totally reword it. Oh, I want to talk about that. Put a pin in that. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, thirdly, uh, I've got my own cultural business. So this is probably going to take three months. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, because these people are busy. Right. It's like, yeah, and it's not like, oh, I'll just find another translator or I'll just find another interpreter. It's like you call the first one, you call the second one. <laughs> oh, we, we, in the, in right? the early days, we'd have, um, yeah, 100%. Um, we don't have that luxury. And in the early days, when we're trying to find people who were already trained or already certified, it was extremely limited in that um, if we had a, um, it, depending on which which mob or, or perhaps tribe, if you want, um, they, they go for longer periods of time with things. So if there's a funeral, uh, the Ananor in particular, could, they could be away for three months. Oh, wow. um, if there's men's initiation, they could be away for six months. Um, at the same time, it could also just be two weeks or it just could be a couple of days. Um, but so what we had at the beginning with, the, with these stakeholders, getting back to your question, is um, so we'd have the water resource, went through the you know, 30 page document, um, it got to a point where the translator would refuse the work and we would have to go back to the to the stakeholder and just say, oh, the client and say, hey, look, um, your work's been refused. Um, that's never really been happened. That's never really happened before. It's, it's a bit unheard of of a translator refusing to do a big job like that. Right. Um, and so then they'd come back to us and go, oh, well, explain yourself a again, because we, we want to pay for this. You, you must explain yourself. Um, and that's where basically uh, I just decided, okay, I've got to go live and breathe this to understand it. And so what I found was by actually being with Indigenous communities, hanging out and understanding things, uh, is that the way that it's worded and done, uh, there needs to be this collaboration of actually this is how it, not just literally with the words translates, this is how it translates culturally and within the you know, context of community. And this is the most appropriate way we can get it across. And this is not being done. So what ended up happening is that we would get a document, a 30-page document, 
the customer would then agree to uh, give it to the uh, the elders who we work with, who the elders would then culturalize it and would return it in a more, um, a, a sort of break it down and then would give it back to the customer to check and compare the original with the cultural version. And this is all in and English then, still. This is still in English. Okay. And then what we do is we make sure is the message being conveyed? Is it still, does it still parallel between the two? Yes, it does. Okay, we've essentially broken it down, simplified it. Now we send it back for translation and instead of 30 pages, it would end up being five. But this whole process would take longer than what it would be to just translate the 30 pages. And then by the time we got to five pages and it was translated, uh, no one would read it because of the literacy rates. So what we ended up doing is that we would then take those five pages as a script and then the elders would have a community meeting Mm -hmm. and they would then be able to play the audio script. So then there's no, um, you're not detouring. Like it, there's it is no what it game is. of telephone. Where's exactly. no, like, is that really what Dr. <laughs> Fauci said or is exactly, yeah, exactly. So um, that happens in English. Like that doesn't, you don't need yeah. the complexity of translation, like messages, yeah. particularly around what's been going on this last year have been, um, challenging to understand. So, yes. Yeah. That's, that's, so we do that now. Um, so th- that rhythm at first just wasn't accepted. And then when we were, I think it sort of, we, we came to butt heads as us and, and our indigenous translators were butting heads with the government. And then the government finally sort of yielded and said, all right, give it a crack. And then when it worked, they're like, this is the best thing since sliced bread. Let's, let's do this every time. Uh, so, uh, uh, do you know of any other? Um, locales, markets, governments, um, peoples around the world using such a method or is this, are you guys the only folks doing it? Cause like I said, I, I hadn't heard of this and Hey, if anybody's watching this, like leave a comment and tag me. Um, cause I'm, I'm interested, but have you heard of anything Lawson? Uh, I, I, I have not, um, in saying that I haven't, um, I was so busy looking for a solution. I stopped looking at other services um so it's possible i don't know um but i know we do it (laughs) yeah no it's it's interesting well maybe maybe it'll spread (laughs) right i I hope so yeah so with the um just one last thing the last thing i want to talk talk about with you is the supply chain what does that look like because particularly not not an all interpreting situation, but my understanding as I learn more and more about this, the interpreting world, the interpreting profession, is that it's it's interesting because you're you're serving the community while employing a member of the community, and this yes. this phenomenon is dis- very distinct when you're serving underserved community or smaller communities, right? Um, what are the complexities of working with indigenous language interpretation that perhaps aren't present if you're providing, you know, trans Chinese translation for a visiting diplomat? Um, a few things. I mean, linguistically, terminology sometimes is difficult. There's a lot of loan words depending on which community's been exposed to what, um, and well, those loan words. But from a from a supply chain, from a staffing standpoint, oh, like the the oh, people standpoint. Uh, okay. Um, well, no, not to. I shouldn't even interrupt you. You're probably getting there. I'm no, sorry. no, no. 
No, no, thank you. Um, uh, it's it's, it's, it's getting closer to five o'clock on Friday. Can you tell? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, let's go. Um, let's go, Lawson. Let's go. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a hell of a question. So um, basically in the early days, it was very, very difficult to find interpreters. Very difficult. And that's why I ask because I'm just kind yeah. of in awe that you were able to do it because I've been that guy well, like calling Malaysian restaurants like do you can, yes can I borrow your dishwasher um, <laughs> right this is going to be interesting uh, so I originally thought I, I originally went door knocking um, yeah. in areas that were known for being indigenous in certain suburbs mm-hmm. uh, that worked for me once but what I found was that. Um, uh, th- that's when I sort of, it probably wasn't the best area. So then from there I, um, flew to, uh, I, I went to the desert pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and there I went to job seeking agencies because there is uh, high unemployment. I worked with some job seeking agencies. Um, they weren't that motivational. So I thought outside of the box and as a kid in Alice Springs, which is basically in the dead center of Australia. So it's the red desert, stereotypical sort of looking you know, Australian place. Um, my uncle and auntie lived up there. And so as a kid, I was familiar with uh, an area where the indigenous hang out. And so I went, uh, they have a public barbecue. So what I did is I went to the Coles and I bought, oh, Coles supermarket, sorry. Uh, and I bought about 10 kilos of meat and I put it on the barbecue. And within about five minutes later, I had about 30 people around me. Um, and basically I was letting everyone have a, have a feed, have something to eat and it opened up the conversation. And in that conversation, uh, I got direct contact numbers for elders. I got direct contact, contact numbers for current interpreters. I was a bit cheeky and I hung out the front of the magistrate's court, uh, where, uh, they're, they're being serviced by another indigenous agency. <laughs> and so just, ambulance <laughs> chaser is what we would yeah. call you here in the U.S. <laughs> Um, and basically I did everything that I could to, um, uh, try and break in socially, which I did. So I've got lifelong friends now and now I'm friends with the elders from about 32 communities and I went and stayed with them. And, uh, from there they would then go, well, these people are community endorsed. They're not certified, but. That that was going to be my next question is what is the role of certification in these languages with such a small community? are there certifying bodies or is it more just like, like how does that work? There is a certifying uh, certified body. Uh, so we have NATI, which is the national accreditation authority for translators and interpreters. And in Australia, I, I, I totally agree with having something to pass the bar. For your, for your, I, I totally get that. But in Australia, we prioritize NATI over everything else. So if you have a batch, a master's, a PhD, it, it doesn't matter. Um, you have to have your NATI and your, your NATI essentially is a, is a test okay. that is done over okay. three hours or whatever. Um, there's a bit of room there, I think for change, but, um, okay. okay. Well, we it sounds like a rabbit hole. We don't need to go down. But. Yeah. Um, so I'm all for it. I just, a bit of change, but, um, with indigenous communities, they do do, um, certification, but it's just very difficult because there needs to be X amount of people. Um, with the cultural calendar, um, you, it's hard to get people in one spot for one period of time. So they try their hardest. They do. Um, and, and good on them. Um, but as far as getting those numbers over, it's it's not abundant and it's not quick. And 
uh, Nazi does rely on service providers being able to give data on what language trends are happening. Um, so providing on who's giving what is what language is coming up next. And mm. yeah, it's it's difficult. So we we have the policy of um, we do in-house training. So we do shadowing where what we'll do is we'll get a senior interpreter who is certified and we'll pair them with someone who's new uh, to go to a job or simulate jobs over an extended period of time to make sure that the individual is up to a standard linguistically so we know through one of our certified interpreters. Um, and then by shadowing, we give them actual simulated experience on, on what's going on. So they have the ability to react if a client is uh, inclined in a particular way or not, um, if something goes wrong, what we can do. Um, so we, we, we basically have to do in-house training as well. That's, that's, that's amazing. I am um, sorry, the feedback. I'm not sure if people can hear that. Um, the, so basically I asked you, tell me about your supply chain and what I'm hearing is, sorry. yeah, there was none. I built it right yes. with that. I mean, we built it. I went to the community and we built it together essentially. Yeah. And all yeah it, I mean, it took some barbecue. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's like, like the it, most Australian recruiting story I've ever heard. I love that. Yeah. I mean, my, my biggest breakthrough was, uh, I, this is, this is like, this is a pretty real, well, this is a very real story. Uh, it's a sad, but it's triumphant. I think, um, when I was in Alice and I had this big barbecue, I met this lady who, um, she had a couple of, a couple of kids, um, who had just grown up and she was heavily pregnant and she wanted to work. Um, she told me that she'd done all this sort of stuff and, you know, she wanted to be an interpreter. She was an interpreter. She spoke four different uh, Central Desert languages. Uh, I thought, oh, great, okay, but you're in Alice Springs. I need work in Adelaide. About uh, for two weeks, I didn't hear anything from her. And then I get a phone call, and she said, oh, I'm, I'm at the airport. Can you pick me up? Okay. And, and I was like, uh, which airport? I, I'm not in Alice Springs. She goes, oh, I'm in Adelaide. And I'm like, okay. Um, I said, what, what are you doing in Adelaide? And she'd, um, she had had uh, a, she had been beaten within an inch of her life and had been in the ICU unit. Mm. And, and she came down with a newborn and uh, basically we, um, she had nothing. So we took her in and I drove her to every single appointment um, to get it going. And today uh, kids are in school. She's got her own house. She's bought her own car. Um, she looks after her extended family. Uh, she's going to study, um, and she's our El Capitano. So, um, we have a lot of stories like that where people are breaking the mold and then that next generation is going to see that mum is uh, a pioneer in setting this up in South Australia. Um, so, and then through her and her family, um, who also worked for other agencies before and did training, they've come across as well. So it's basically been... Do things a little bit outside of the box, make genuine relationships, and it comes. Um, but as far as the supply chain as well, where we have conflicts of interest, um, we actually um, so we have uh, a couple of things with conflict of interest for supply chain. Um, one is um, if uh, we have a thing called skin name. Uh, uh, so we have a, an English name. So we might have an interpreter called uh, Charles Wilson. Uh, okay. But his skin name, his oh. indigenous name, um, is is called uh, Jacamara. Got it. And so we have to we have to find that out. And then what we do is to get around that is we get a skin name, but also um, if we have the language Pitanjara, for example, 
Kilimanjaro covers an area that's probably the size of Switzerland, um, and we'll get people from different communities to cross that, so we don't cross over. So we'll get someone, say, from Unidad or Fink, which is far over to the east of the desert, and then uh, to service, say, someone from the Nungandiri Gillies area, which is on the Western Australia border. Oh, okay, so I understand now, because you probably saw my confused face. I was like, what What conflicts of interest? Like, um, so just oh, sorry, any, yeah, any conflicts, someone, sorry. The conflicts of interest that, hey, I grew up, I was born and raised in a small town. I, I understand conflicts of I, what you're talking about, right? Yeah. It's just, you know, people from the community interpreting for their brothers, sisters, cousins, um, aunties, yeah, exactly. ex-wives. I, exactly. So, um, all right, now I understand. We also have that with the indigenous family tree. Um, so, for example, um, if you have a brother... Uh, and you're married and you go away, your brother's responsibility is to take over care for your family. So the kids refer to your brother as dad. Interesting. So, and then your first cousins are essentially considered brother or sister um, all the way. And then if you have a, a, like a, a nephew, a nephew is a, is basically how we would be polite. You know, we've got a family friend that we call uncle and auntie. And then that kids would be just our friends. That considered nephew and niece. Oh, um, so basically, when you get that family tree and, and everybody's an oh, auntie, yeah, every, yeah, everybody's and, a cousin or an auntie or a nephew yeah. or a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I and used you to, can imagine. Oh, sorry. No, I was going to say my, my wife when we first met. She's from Accra, Ghana, right? And so African yeah. culture and um, Ghanaian culture, I should say, not African culture. Yeah, I called out the other day for that by my Is wife. She a airway or a tree speaker? A tree. Well, oh, Fonty, Fonty, actually, but oh, cool. she can't speak tree. Her dad's Ave, so yeah, it's it's like like your your friend from the desert, right? Speaks four languages, yeah. just doesn't even yeah, think yeah. anything of it. Plus English, plus Chinese, plus French, right? But um, <laughs> it's like when we first started dating, I was thinking, what, like how how many cousins? Like how big is her family? Right? Because she, oh, my cousin, my auntie, my blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And it took me a while. It's just, you know, this American guy is like, oh, they're not actually cousins. Well, in their, yeah. who am I to say they're not actually cousins? They just have a different definition of cousin. Right? Exactly. And you can, you could understand if you go into court and the interpreter says, oh, I'll just tell my nephew, you know, that he's, and the court goes, hang on a second, what's this all about? And it's like, oh, well, actually it's not, you know what I mean? So, yeah. so we, we have to go through those sorts of little cultural changes so for supply we have to be is it really a son or a cousin or is it a polite affiliation you know uh, term so these things have to be clarified yeah. and you know this, yes. this is beyond language this is that cultural adaptation that you're talking yeah. about that people don't even think about i wouldn't think about it yeah and it's fair to assume like i wouldn't if i had a a, a customer call and just say hey look there's a conflict of interest because they're a family member um, I wouldn't get my back up about it because I don't expect them to know that. Um, One of the worst things, I mean, I, I, I can't speak cause I don't have personal experience, but I've heard from people who have gone through this and it it just can be icky making family yes. members <sighs> interpret for family members. It just, it's yucky is the best. Yes, that's the best word that I can come up with it. It's not <laughs> it's yucky. So, well, you know, we've been doing this now for about 40 minutes. I try to keep these about 45 minutes, but th- I, we could we could keep going. But it is Saturday morning for you. You've got a lawn to mow. 
Yes. And I've got sleep to do. <laughs> right? No, no, no. I've got kids waiting downstairs. And it's only a matter of time before they come up here and find me. But I, closing question, closing question after sure. talk. And we haven't, if, if for those that have made it this far and, and are watching this, like Lawson and I met today, basically, right? This is the first time that we were talking. Um, so we're getting to know each other as well. But I'm fascinated about all the work that you're doing and just the scope of the work that you're doing. And I'm particularly fascinated, you know, forgive my, my being so forward, but you are very white, right? Yes. You are obviously not indigenous. <laughs> Like no, I'm not. Why? I'm not like, sure what gave that away. Why is this your no? Not like why are you white? But like why is this like how how did you come into this? Because um, I'm I'm very interested to understand that. Um, I think it's a collection of things. Um, the way that it happened is uh, I I sort of nutshelled that. But uh, long story short, there was a, a seven year old kid who was stuck in a psychiatric ward for three months, and um they had been trying to get an interpreter through other streams before that. And I know it's business, but the indigenous side is also quite humanitarian in that no one else is clearly actively going out and, and pursuing this to fix issues that are right on our front door. Um, and I don't understand it. And so I sort of got sucked in with, with having had that experience of, uh, going into communities and just seeing the hardship, seeing the poverty, uh, seeing the neglect, um, seeing social issues that have been um, branded as stereotypes against Indigenous people um, by people who just have never been out there and would understand better, like um, seeing the unemployment and thinking we have to do something about this. We have to. Um, there's, there's a better way. And so I got sucked into that. And when I get sucked into something, I am like a dog with a bone. And yeah. so... To go from one language to 32 languages, from one state to four states, um, to being on a federal level in five and a half years, um, that shows my tenacity and how much I care. And just living and breathing with Indigenous communities, um, you get attached. You get attached. Um, and for me, I just think, like, as a country, we... We have two spheres that are not talking to each other. Uh, we, we do have the white international Australia and we have Indigenous Australia. And I think both sides are so exhausted emotionally from arguing for decades with each other that they've just sort of gone deaf with one another. And what... Like a stalemate. Want, yeah, total stalemate. And, and so the emotion is being piled on into areas where nothing's going to happen. And in the meantime, I'm thinking if I'm providing an interpreting service and an ability to access languages, why are we not also looking at the, like the history and the culture and, and how can we make it cohesive? And so my next step is that I've actually designed a rehabilitation program for uh, correctional services. Um, to make a generation difference. And so I'm working, well, I'm, I'm in talks with a university and a correctional service uh, facility uh, where we want to do a interpreting and translating program uh, in prison. Uh, and we're going to filter the prisoners by which crimes they've committed and talk to our customers on, would you be happy to have say someone who hasn't worn a seatbelt a million times and has do you know what I mean? Like, like low grade crimes. Um, the facilities in the prison will be able to 
not hardened criminals. Not. No, no, unfortunately, um, yeah, that's that's too far gone. But if we can basically have first-time offenders on petty crimes and we can put them in a classroom of, say, 12 or 15, and we can instill confidence in them by saying, you can use your language, believe in your language, believe in your culture, um, get them a, a certificate from a university so they have education behind them, um, a sense of pride, a sense of achievement. And then the problem that we have is getting interpreters in different geographical areas. So when they are repatriated from prison to their local community, those individuals then will be able to, um, or those communities will be able to have trained, knowledgeable, um, formalised interpreters in community who can work with whoever comes in. It's not so much about um, our agency monopolising on having this scheme to get interpreters. I want all these interpreters to have as many opportunities as possible. So when they go back to community, um, that kids, parents, whoever can see, oh, Joe's back. He got his certificate in interpreting. Um, he's now being advertised on a website. Anyone can access him and pay him for his services. That money goes into the economy. The people around him see what a leader he is, how he can be rehabilitated, use his skill set, create employment. And so that's that's my next uh, project that I well, that, that's what I'm that's, currently working on. That's the next that's the next bone this dog will be chewing on. <laughs> yes. <laughs> to use your is. metaphor from earlier. <laughs> And what what an amazing cause. Like, um, Lawson, thank you so much for coming on today. This has been um, a fascinating conversation, but we got to go. We got to do yeah. this. Uh, you're welcome to come on any, any, any time because I'm sure we could have 12 more fascinating conversations where this come um, came from. Guys in the comments, Oscar particularly, I see you down here, but my thing's not working. I can't bring you up on... Um, stage but we've got oscar quotos in the comments autumn smith hi autumn how are you um more people to shout out later uh what else i, I think we're done sorry I, i'm trying to outro this on, on a friday but um thank you very much um thank you, thank you to nimsy and keep doing what you're doing uh, we will we will sir um for, so for those of you out there still listening once again this is from nimsy insights uh we like to have these conversations with thought leaders in our industry and from other industries if that's you or if you know somebody who would make a great guest for a live stream it takes very little time to set up as i mentioned this is the first time that i've actually talked to lawson today come on in we'll get you live if you got some value to add or a story to tell and with that, one last round of applause here for Lawson as we go out, and we'll see you next time, guys.